G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. There's a lot of different dimensions that we can go to when we have a special guest like Bible teacher Dr. Camille Majdali. He's now back in the UK and so uh, staying up late at night and we'll thank him in just a moment. But after the Understanding the Times tour of Australia, the tour took in gatherings in Queensland, in Victoria, in Tasmania and in Western Australia. And this year, different to other years, there is a follow-up to the tour of four consecutive weeks starting on the 14th of November gathering online called The Deep Dive. It'll take viewers into a deeper exploration of world trends in light of Bible prophecy. We'll talk some more about those things. Get ready to call us uh, on 1-800-316-316. Dr. Camille Majdali is joining us from the UK. Hello, Camille. Welcome back to 2020. Hello, Neil, and hello, Australia. Camille, uh, the Understanding the Times tour, all of a sudden it seems to have come and gone quickly. Maybe it was like that for you, but you did an awful lot of travelling while you were here. Uh, Are there some highlights from the tour you would like to reminisce about? Well, sure. It was amazingly a little bit shorter than the previous time in 2019, only six weeks rather than 10. But it was, of course, wonderfully jam-packed. One thing that I recall is, again, people who traveled long distances for the meeting. One man told me he had heard of the meeting, the tail end of the vision ad. He was 500 kilometers away from the venue. This is in WA in the Kimberleys. So he drove the 500 kilometers, including 120 kilometers on dirt road. So he said that he was glad he came. It was a confirmation from the Lord of what he had felt. I heard other people say the same thing. I also was glad to see people coming to me and saying, we've come every year. We're very excited to have you come again. And I think most importantly, is that people went away with hope, even with some joy. Now, remember, I'm talking about some heavy-duty things. I'm talking about what's happening in our crazy, mixed-up world. But yes, there is every reason to hope, because we serve the living God. And as Paul says, we don't worry about anything. We pray about everything. And the other thing I want to mention is the Gen Z who showed up at the meetings. Gen Z, approximately born in the year 2000 and after. Supposedly, we're told the most conservative generation in our lifetimes, even more conservative than you and I, Neil, the generation that is. (laughs) And I I remember one guy named Josh, he came to Castle, Maine, and uh, he had waited like, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes to get through the door because he wants to take hold of the future that lies before him. So seeing his enthusiasm helped encourage me as the speaker. 
This is the powerful dimension that comes from someone who is a Bible teacher and someone who specializes in Bible prophecy because there's a dimension in there. You could go and see some great orator who might be commentating on the politics of the day. But when you bring a biblical dimension in there, there's a certain speciality in that. And for people who have a connection to God, an understanding of his purposes, past, present and future, uh, there's nothing quite like getting a biblical God's eye perspective on things happening. And the interesting thing, Camille, when you do a tour, the length of yours, and I think it was over the course of a couple of months, the sorts of trends that you monitor from the start of the tour to the end of the tour, you get all sorts of things that begin to change. And this is a evolving process of things that are happening. And so you're keeping abreast of things even while you're on the road. I indeed do my best. But let me tell you, even when I'm not on the road, there's so much going on. It's a big effort to keep abreast. And I don't claim to have my finger on every pulse, but what I do aim to do is watch the general trends. And that's why in the deep dive, which we're having soon, I'm talking about world trends, the general things, although they'll sound very specific, but they are things that we continually watch for as we see not only world events unravel, but also Bible prophecy come to the fore. So it's very exciting, and people are very... It's like being in a dark room and having someone turn on the light, and now you can see everything. That That is a very thrilling thing. And I have a little motto, Neil, which I've shared continually. Once you know and understand a situation, you are more than halfway towards a solution. Some people will think that as a specialist in Bible prophecy, that somehow or other this is such an inexact science. Aren't there people who are saying all sorts of things and, uh, you know, if I listen to one, maybe I'm missing something another's saying, maybe they're all saying different things. But it's not quite so inexact. There are some very exact things in biblical prophecy. Camille, I wonder if you've got any thoughts here, because, you know, when we say those early ecumenical creeds, we're in anticipation that, yes, Jesus is returning. So there's some exact things in biblical prophecy. I wonder if you've got any thoughts here on sometimes the fact that you are into speculation. Other times you've got very solid evidence for the things that you say. And there are some things that just are not changing and they will happen because we've been given that promise from God. Well, very. it was greatly said, what, what you just shared, Neil. It is, in some ways, speculation, but in many ways, when you cleave closely to Scripture, you are right at, on the sure foundation. One of the things I've noticed, and to me it is part of the last days, is there's two trends. One is an increase in lawlessness, not just normal petty thievery, <laughs> but corruption in the highest levels, and increase in deception. Now, both of these are prophesied as part of the last day's scenario, not just the normal workaday lying and the workaday criminality, but very, very high. And it's just amazing. There is a correlation between the two. When you have a lack of truth, 
you're going to have a lack of law abidingness or lawfulness. When you have an increase of deception, you also have an increase of lawlessness. And that's it's interesting that the evil one that is often called Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, is also called the lawless one. So watching these two, I mean, they're not nice trends, let's be honest. But when you see them together, again, the light goes on and you say, I understand. And you become like one of the children of Issachar, understanding the times so that you can know what you need to do. That, to me, is very thrilling. It just shows the pathway forward. I mean, for us, one of the things we need to do is to preach the righteousness of God in Christ. <laughs> That's a very good death blow to lawlessness as well as to deception. Camille, sometimes uh, using the word antichrist, uh, some will say we can try and point to, and as you were saying, speculating about one man. But this depth, when you're talking about lawlessness, extends to a spirit of antichrist. I wonder if you've got any thoughts that even apart from the rise of one individual uh, lawless figure that might be a biblical uh, version of the Antichrist, that this spirit of Antichrist is at work wherever there is this attack against, you know, a godly lawfulness. I, I believe there's room for both. <laughs> Plenty of room for a single individual who bears that horrible title and a spirit that has been permeating throughout the church age. I'm just referring to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. It says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, it makes it sound like instead of just one Antichrist, there's many human Antichrists. But I think that also encompasses the spirit of Antichrist, which these human Antichrists operate in. And I think what we need to have, Neil, and what I emphasize in the Understanding the Times Tour is the spiritual gift of discernment. Because the discernment will preserve you from the lies and deception and going down the wrong path and getting destroyed, and the lack of discernment, being gullible or being like the simple young man of Proverbs 7, can lead to disaster. So that is a clarion call for all God's people. Exercise discretion and discernment. Well, I want to invite listeners to join into our conversation. You might have a question. You might have a comment. You might have caught some of Camille's presentations while he was in Australia. There might be some questions you have that, that take us into a deeper dimension on some of these issues because oftentimes we find we're just scratching the surface on a short conversation like this where we get to talk about all sorts of different things around events or ways that we can talk about trends in the end times. So 1-800-316-316, you can help direct where our conversation goes. Might be a particular issue you'd like some clarity on. While we're waiting for those calls to come through, uh, Camille, just touch on uh, a few thoughts here for us. Uh, tonight, our time. 
Americans will be off to the polls for their midterm elections. Uh, there's all sorts of anticipation. There'll be a major change in the states. Uh, what are your thoughts as you've been following along the midterm election campaign? Well, midterms are always important. This one is particularly important because the polarization that's been in the United States for a while, it's not just in the last five years or six years, uh, is leading to, uh, leading to a culmination here one way or the other. Anticipation that there could be what they call a red wave and the right of center Republicans will trounce the left of center Democrats in Congress. Bear in mind, the midterms is about Congress. It's about 33 out of 100 Senate seats, and it's also about 435 congressional seats. Every, every Congress person is up for re-election every two years. What is interesting is that there are some safe seats, or have been safe seats for decades, and now they're in danger. And we're talking about senators and governors and representatives. I think of the state of Washington, where I still am registered. And we have Senator Patty Murray. She's been in power since 1992. And she's always had an easy run for re-election. This time, she's in danger, like real danger. And they were hoping to flip the Senate and get the Republicans... Uh, 50 seats or whatever, 52, 51, 52. Now they're looking at 55 seats, which doesn't sound like much, but that really changes the balance of power. In the House of Representatives, 435 seats, they are expecting the Republicans to take over, and Nancy Pelosi probably will go into retirement. Life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson. On Vision Christian Radio. Talk back line open, 1-800-316-316. Dr. Camille Majdali is our guest. He leads Teach All Nations, tan.org.au, uh, to register to be a part of the deep dive that's coming up, the first session on the 14th of November. Camille, let's take a call or two. Bill is on the line from Victoria. Hello, Bill. Welcome along. Oh, good morning, Neil, and good morning, Dr. Camille. Um, just got uh, a couple of uh, little topics I wouldn't would really appreciate your uh, comments on. In terms of lawlessness and breaking laws, just um, wanting your comment on Jesus breaking the Sabbath law. In terms of um, Dr. Mark Martin Luther King breaking in unjust laws in terms of slavery and in terms of civil rights, those sorts of issues, laws that are being made. In a, in a hum, human way where they're not based on biblical laws, which we as Christians need to critique and examine as to whether they're based on justice or injustice. We're seeing a lot of, like an example, you can go into a, um, a supermarket, a, a homeless person might go into a supermarket and steal, steal a, a, a lolly or something like that to stop them from hunger. And, and they'll get charged by the police and possibly jailed. The, the, the same supermarket might be um, might be inflating their prices and charging a dollar or two or three dollars more than what is what is legally appropriate. The the person who's homeless gets charged. The the big corporation gets away with uh, 
legal stealing. That's that's one one comment, one one issue I'd like you to deal with, please. The, the uh, stay with that and we'll, ta- we'll tackle that. And uh, if we've got time, we'll come back for another one, Bill. But uh, Camille, oh, that'd uh, be lovely. Thank you, Neil. Uh, Camille, thank thoughts you. here uh, for Bill? Sure. Well, thank you for your call, Bill. It's not lawless to do what Jesus did or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because they are looking to a higher law. It's the law that Jesus broke with the Sabbath were basically traditions of men. He's made and rightly said, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, and that the Sabbath was made for men, not men for the Sabbath. Of course, that includes women as well. The point being that the Sabbath was meant to serve humanity and glorify God, and they made all these amazingly ridiculous and intricate traditions, what constituted work and what didn't constitute work. I mean, they could pull their beast of burden out of a ditch on the Sabbath day. They could circumcise on the Sabbath day, and that was not uh, considered work or breaking the Sabbath. But then when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, I mean, he hardly lifted a finger. Uh, He was in gross violation, and they sought to destroy him. It's not lawless to, to do what he did because he was going to a higher law. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, was fighting for civil rights in a nonviolent manner, my dad. And so he alluded to the higher law, quoting scripture, I think, a fair bit of the time, as opposed to the unjust laws of his day, which were in violation of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. The, the laws of men that brought that spawned the civil rights movement. So to me, that is not lawless if you break lesser laws that are in violation of the higher laws. Yes, yes. Thank, Bill, thank you for that. what was the other dimension the, the you other, wanted to add? Just, just a quick one, please. Uh, in, the, in the Bible, it talks about uh, Elijah, I think it's Elisha, uh, confronting the, 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 the prophets of Baal. And he slaughtered quite a few of them. I'm just wondering whether Dr. Camille, whether he'd be able to bring into a modern context as to in, in the modern world what would be examples of human beings worshiping uh, Baal. Uh, Camille, oh boy, <laughs> uh, that's not as easy to answer as the the previous question. One of the things with the culture wars and the fight of abortion some have likened and i'm just throwing it out i'm not going to make a big deal about it i'm not going to pontificate but that part of what we face with this really energetic push for abortion under the guise of reproductive rights some have likened it to baal worship because that's what baal did actually he was a statue a metallic statue and was heated up, and there they offered live sacrifices of infants. It is, it is. I, I'm advised in saying this, and I'm not making it a doctrine, but some could see. I can see why some would say there is a connection. There's a spiritual dimension. So mm-hmm. Baal worship, of course, is the worship of nature, worship of agriculture, 
the sacrifice of children. They did it in the Old Testament. It was hideous back then. And, uh, well, I won't elaborate anymore. I think enough said. Bill, does that uh, adequately uh, answer a response to your thought there? Um, in terms of, like, in terms of people who are concerned about God's creation, like, I, I, I'm a person concerned about the, 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 the deforestation of the Amazon and, and uh, the extinction of animals, all that sort of stuff. Like, we, God, in, in Genesis, talks about God put us into this world to be wise stewards. There's a lot of a lot of destruction of um, of God's creation that's happening. So I think there's a difference between worshiping, as in panentheism. Panentheism is God is in everything. Pantheism is worshiping things. In terms of panentheism, in terms of caring for God's creation, all that sort of stuff. A differentiation between caring for God's creation and and so-called worshiping God's creation. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, does bring into light some things which are developing even today around uh, the environmental movement, uh, extinction devel- uh, rebellion, all sorts of things like that. Camille, uh, thoughts here? Uh, pantheism, panentheism, which uh, these terminologies not always uh, uh, being used by people in everyday conversation. Are you familiar with those, Camille? I'm familiar that pantheism is God is in everything, and therefore you basically <laughs> worship everything. Uh, what I would say is it's pretty simple. Romans talks about it and other places. We worship God. We steward the creation. It, it's really that simple. And there's sensible stewardship, and then there's ideologically extreme. It's not even stewardship, but it's an obsession which can, for some, lead to worship of creation rather than the creator. It's the same in so many walks of life. We we enjoy sport, and that's fine, but we're not to worship sport. We, We use money, but we're not to worship money. We enjoy and are blessed with priceless relationships, but we don't worship the relationships. In all things, we put God first, we worship him, and then we end up being the best we can in all areas of life, including relationship, including stewardship, including being a responsible, fruit-bearing individual, and so on. Camille, before we go any further, let's talk about your deep dive. What ought listeners expect? The sorts of things you'll be tackling, the sorts of issues and trends that you've got in mind for bringing to the deep dive event. All right, well, the deep dive starts... It's coming Monday, 14th of November, 7.30 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Of course, 6.30 in Brisbane and I guess 4.30 in WA. But we will look at uh, different things. It's 90 minutes, one hour, I give a presentation, about an hour. And the other 30 minutes is interactive Q&A which I really look forward to. I've already gotten some, <laughs> some juicy questions. In the first session on Monday, we're going to look at the 10 trends that are changing our world. We're going to look at the most important single word we could use in the last days, why it's important and why we need to be doing it. And then we will have a general connection about how do 
these world trends connect with Bible prophecy. That's in week one. Week two, I take a look at the Middle East, especially three key countries, Israel, Iran, and Turkey. They are incredibly important countries, and we'll learn why. If you want to understand the future, you have to know the past. And these countries have got a past and a half. I mean, they are rich, they are deep. Then we'll focus on the third week on the most important single foreign policy issue in the world, and that is the status of Jerusalem, a, a city I know well. I've done, I've done research at postgraduate level on Jerusalem. I have a lot to share. And then, of course, the last Monday, the f- number four, is the wind-up, looking at Bible prophecy, what to watch for next, and so on. And so that's what we're going to cover. I look forward to it because, frankly, in understanding the times, I only have like an hour and a bit. We want to go deeper than that. And that's why, for the first time ever, we're offering Deep Dive 2022. Well, you can join in our conversation right now. Camille is live with us. He's in the UK. It is the middle of the night there. But 1-800-316-316. If you have a question or a comment or you'd like to know some deeper insights around issues of trends that are happening today. You're going to have a significant focus on those Middle Eastern nations and more specifically Israel, Camille. Well, we can't go without talking about one of the biggest developments in Israel that's happened just over this past week, and that is the return of Benjamin Netanyahu after their Israel elections. What are your immediate thoughts on his return to the prime ministerial role? Well, he's already the longest-serving prime minister in Israel's history. That was even as of 2021 when he left power. He's going to now have another run for up to four years if his government will hold. And it, uh, it is a contrast having him return to the government that just is lost power. Remember, Israel's had five elections in less than four years. I mean, this is not very stable, but look at the United Kingdom, three prime ministers in a matter of seven weeks. So, and of course, Australia has had prime ministerial musical chairs too. The return of Netanyahu is also interesting because this election was in its own way a red wave or a a more conservative right of center wave. What they're anticipating in America in the midterms, that's what happened in Israel. Not only did he get a solid enough majority, 64 seats out of 120, but some of the left-of-center parties that have been around for decades, two of them have been wiped off the electoral map. That's the Meretz Party, a very far-left secular party, and the Ballad Party, which is an Arab-Israeli party, which is anti-Zionist kind of thing. And then the opposition Labour Party, which was the party of Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, and Yitzhak Rabin, it's been reduced to a rump of only four seats out of 120. That's like in the U.S. Congress, 535 seats, and the Democrats only get 16 when they normally had up to 270. So that is quite an amazing shift. And I guess part of it is the previous government was left of center, very secular, willing to appease enemies and, you know, similar to Iran nuclear deal kind of thing. 
this party is more tough, it's more right, it's more uh, religious than they've seen. So you've got a real contrast with the outgoing party and the party that's coming in. Camille, what do you think a new Netanyahu-led coalition might mean for some of the relationships that dominate the news headlines, uh, the relationships, say, with the Palestinians, uh, and relationships that go more broadly across some of the Arab nations, how they might relate to Netanyahu uh, returning to this role? All right. Netanyahu has an image. The image isn't always in line with the reality. It's not just with him, with so many. But he has an image of being strong on defense, anti-terrorism, things like that. He also has an image of being an Israeli nationalist. Again, that's his image. How much of that is the reality? We'll leave it for the good Lord to determine. But in the Middle East, what people don't realize, they, we f- tend to forget, it was while he was still prime minister and Donald Trump was still president that they forged four peace treaties all at once with key, with key nations in the Arab world. The, we've never seen this before. But prior to those peace treaties, he was having de facto contact with not just those four nations, but with other nations, including Saudi Arabia. So, in a sense, it's a familiar face and one that they would probably feel some stability and reliability. I'm not saying this to endorse. I'm, I'm, I want to be considered neutral here. But that's my understanding, is they will look for the stability, the strength, the continuity, which wasn't the case in the previous outgoing Bennett-Lapid government. So I, I think you can get, sometimes you get a lot more done when you have people who are ideologically clear, like the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel of 1978-79. That was between Sadat and Begin, and Begin was a hardline Likud nationalist. He's the one that made the peace treaty, not the one that was how she say, more middle of the center, muddled a little bit, wishy-washy. Now, sometimes the, the tough guys are the ones that actually make the deals. Same with Nixon in China, 1972. Camille, Israel in Bible prophecy, uh, Israel wasn't there pre-1948. All of a sudden it is there now, and Biblical prophecy includes Israel. It's right there in the center. So as we're looking on from a distance uh, from here in Australia and seeing these events unfold in the Middle East, a toing and froing, uh, a return to power now of someone who is, as you say, uh, a little more on the conservative side. How does how does this sort of thing look in light of Bible prophecy? Any thoughts here? Uh, well, that, that is actually a very fundamental question, is when we talk about prophecy, who's the starring cast, humanly speaking? And for that, you have to go to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. It's called the 70-week prophecy. It is the foundation stone for all end-time prophecy. And one of the first things that is said in this four-verse 
prophecy is that the prophecy is for Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city. Well, who are Daniel's people? Of course, it's, it's the Jewish people, Israel. Well, who is Daniel's holy city? Well, it's a no-brainer. It's Jerusalem. We know it's Jerusalem because he prayed towards Jerusalem. In fact, he ended up in the lion's den because he prayed towards Jerusalem. So you've got a people and a city that are front and center of this prophetic revelation. When you go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, especially Matthew 24, it has twin passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21, but in Matthew 24, it's very, shall we say, Jewish-flavored, like don't let your flight be in the Sabbath day or in the winter, or when you see the abomination of desolation, well, to understand that, you have to go back to Daniel and to the 70-week prophecy. <laughs> and so uh, it is important to see this in context because, remember, there was no geopolitical entity called Israel for nearly 2,000 years. Now in these days, living memory, it comes back into existence and not without great opposition. I mean, furious opposition from the locals. And I mean, I know the politics there very well. I, I can, I understand them. I can argue them from all sides, but I'm not talking politics. I'm talking Bible. I'm talking something that has to do with redemption, God's kingdom coming to earth, true justice, true righteousness, true peace. That's what we're talking about. The, the advent of these things on earth, but they will take the return of Christ for that to happen. So when you see these things come to pass, look up, lift up your head for your redemption draws nigh. It's, so back to the question of Israel, it is pretty central, I have to say, in light of Bible prophecy. Because of that centrality, Camille, we might be interested in Australia and our relationship with Israel, and you'll be across some detail where Penny Wong and the Albanese government have taken a step back from recognizing West Jerusalem as a capital of Israel. And uh, that's been met with uh, criticism from commentators everywhere more broadly, but it's been met with praise uh, from the likes of uh, the Hamas, uh, the Palestinian people. <laughs> uh, there's been a bit of uh, concern around that, but I wonder if you've had any thoughts about it. Well, uh, yes, I, I have probably a lot of thoughts, and I only have a few moments to say them. What Scott Morrison did, let's remember, is it was a by-election in Wentworth, has a high Jewish population, and there was the gesture of recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and possibly moving the Australian embassy. Normally, those two go hand in hand. Recognition of a country, recognition of its capital, moving the embassy, or building an embassy. But then there was some blowback, and so Morrison decided, well, we'll just safely, safely recognize West Jerusalem, <laughs> which on the surface, you know, so what? And we're not moving the embassy. It was, it was just, how can we say it, a sentiment more than anything else, not a concrete policy. 
then the Albanese government under Penny Wong, the foreign minister, reverses that, saying we, we want the two-state solution, so we're not recognizing anything until that two-state solution is implemented. The interesting thing is, in theory, recognizing Jerusalem, at, or at least part of Jerusalem, as Israel's capital, would not be in violation of a two-state principle, because the two-state principle doesn't just want to take this little postage stamp of real estate that we call the Holy Land and divide it into two countries. They want to take Jerusalem and divide it into two cities, two capitals. So having recognition of one part of Jerusalem wouldn't have violated the thing. I, I, I mean, it's all, it's all very meaningless in many ways, to be honest. But symbols are important too. And so Australia has returned to the foreign consensus that Jerusalem must be part of the deal of any peace agreement. And a divided Jerusalem is highly problematic for many reasons. But uh, that's what the world wants because, after all, a, a united Jerusalem is the perfect launching pad, or shall we say, home base for a returning Messiah. Thoughts from you, Camille, because uh, Australia, in turning their back or walking away from the recognition even of only, as you say, part of Jerusalem, West Jerusalem as the capital, but saying, uh, we think the capital of Jerusalem is Tel Aviv. Uh, but Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and that's what the Israelis say is the capital. Isn't it a bit strange when it would be interesting to think of other countries thinking of Australia and saying, Perth must be the capital city, not Canberra. Uh, <laughs> there's something that just doesn't add up there, uh, and it is obviously political. Uh, thoughts here around the fact that it doesn't, uh, it just doesn't all add up? Well, Jerusalem is very unique in many quarters. It is political, but ultimately, in my estimation, it's theological and prophetic. Because what we learn in Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14 is that Jerusalem will be the cup of trembling for the neighboring people and a burdensome stone for all peoples, all nations. In fact, the whole world according to Zechariah, is going to not just dispute over Jerusalem, the whole world is going to go to war against Jerusalem. When you think about what Jerusalem has to offer, it's laughable. <laughs> There's no resources or strategic value in the place, just a handful of holy sites. So why on earth would you have the whole world going to war? Ultimately, it's a fulfillment of the second psalm, that the nations are raging and in turmoil, because the king is getting ready to return. And that's why, ultimately, it is a spiritual theological issue involving Jerusalem. It is called, Neil, more than once in Scripture, the city of the great king. And, of course, the great king, we're not talking about David. We're talking about the son of David, namely Jesus Christ. And so he's going to come and reign from Jerusalem. And because of that fact, the forces of darkness will do everything in their power to dissuade, to hijack, to divide, to disturb God's plan. They will fail, and they know they're going to fail, but they're going to give it a good try, at least to delay. 
if at all possible. Camille, attitudes to Jerusalem here, because uh, some will say, uh, you can reflect back to uh, Scripture, I think it's Deuteronomy, Uh, those who will bless Jerusalem will be under the blessing of God, those who curse Jerusalem be under the curse of God. Uh, Thoughts here about attitudes of governments, and including our own Australian government in here, and having a right relationship with Jerusalem. Uh, any thoughts here? Is this just a superstition that's developed, or is there real uh, teeth or reality to this thought of God's blessing on people who will bless Jerusalem? Well, I'm more familiar with the Psalm 122, and verse 6, that exhorts us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and that he shall prosper that love her. The peace of Jerusalem, again, this is not political, it's not nationalistic, it is theological, it is spiritual. Jerusalem belongs to the Lord. It is his city. It was where his temple once stood, he, not that God was fussed with the temple. I, as far as I'm concerned, God didn't even ask for a temple. <laughs> this is something David wanted to do because he felt guilty living in a palace while the ark of God was in a tent called the tabernacle. But the point is, it was the place of God's glory, where God put his name. And it, the city belongs to him, and it belongs to those who belong to God, right? But especially the city of the great king himself. And I don't believe the great king is going to rule in the clouds and the by and by. I believe he's going to rule on this planet. That's why every time we recite the Lord's Prayer, we pray his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's in many ways God's local address, especially when he comes to return. And remember, the scripture says God is coming. Read the end of Psalm 96. He's coming not just to pay a courtesy call, he's coming to take over. And to me, that transcends any politics or any nationalism or anything else that you can imagine. Time is short now, Camille. The deep dive four weeks. Uh, I've been saying people can connect with you and participate in those deep dive sessions at tan.org.au. Teach All Nations, tan.org.au. Uh, just uh, for people who are thinking, I'd like to connect here with Camille. Is it going to be an easy thing to do? Uh, if I don't connect with the deep dive sessions, can I get onto the Issachar teaching newsletter? Uh, those sorts of things. How would you hope people will respond to our conversation today? Well, if you want to learn more, then I do encourage you to go to our website, Again, thank you for the URL, tan.org.au, acronym for Teach All Nations. There you can register for Deep Dive. We still have the early bird until Wednesday, and then five days later we start. If, bearing in mind, it will be recorded, and registered participants can access those recordings if for some reason they couldn't make it that night, or they want to hear it again, it's there. Failing that, there is Issachar, which I offer every month, and it's basically to help people become future ready with articles from the Bible, victorious Christian living, and current events in the light of God's word. As far as connecting with us, you can dialogue 
through Issachar. You can dialogue through Deep Dive, uh, and you can dialogue through the website. We're, we're, we're here to connect with people and to offer prophetic hope in the midst of all the change and challenge we face today. And Camille, before I let you go, uh, a great Understanding the Times tour. You've got the deep dive that's coming up, tan.org.au. Some listeners might be thinking, is there already a plan for next year? Or what's next on the agenda for Dr. Camille Majdali? Any any uh, insights here? Well, I, I was of the conviction in the middle of this last tour that we will continue... There's plenty to cover. There's plenty of people to reach. There's plenty of practical exhortation, positive things you can do to make life better, not for yourself and your family, but for the community and even the nation. So yes, there will definitely, by the grace of God, be an Understanding the Times Tour 2023, and we'll see where it takes us from there. And depending on what the response to Deep Dive, we will have that as well which is, in a sense, part of the extended understanding the times. Well, Camille, thanks so much for staying up late and sharing your thoughts and your heart with us once again today on 2020. To connect for the deep dive, tan.org.au. Camille, thanks for being with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil, and God bless Australia. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.